The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 27 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the Trios Tag Team Champions of the World, the Master Library Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as the House Show. Welcome, everyone, to the final edition of the House Show in your house series. It is me, as always, Mr. Matty Treats, and I am joined by my Trios Tag Team Partners. To my right is the Educator of Excellence. Educator, we made it. Oh, baby. We got all the way to the end. End of a chapter culminates today with our St. Valentine's Day Massacre pay-per-view review. It's been a hell of a ride, gentlemen. Can't wait to get through the show. It is the end of September for us. Of course, next Thursday is October 1st, and that is when we go into uh, WCW's NWA Halloween Havoc. It's very exciting for us. But uh, So what did you think of uh, the entire In Your House series? educator oh there were definitely hidden gems that i was a a blast to rediscover there were certainly uh matches and segments that you know just do an absolute face palm and just wonder what in the world were creative and mcmahon thinking overall i've had an absolute uh, just a joyful time going through this series with you guys and i just i i can't wait for great things to come with our next step with halloween havoc you know, absolutely. And then, of course, to my left is none other than the masked library, Kevin Hellions. Kevin, how is your uh, September been? Um, I mean, you know, I think it's been difficult, much like 2020 for all of us. I, I was debating on taking a Green Day nap. Uh, a Green Day nap? What is that? Well, thank you for asking, Matt. That is, uh, you just have someone wake you up when September ends. I figured you would, you so, would take a Wyclef uh, nap. A Wyclef? No, what's a Wyclef Well, that's nap? when you're gone till November. <laughs> well played. But you know, like we were saying, we're at the end of the In Your House series, and I'm actually feeling a little emotional. It feels like I'm leaving some friends here behind. You know, uh, friends like Savio Vega, Goldust Bodyguard. You know, and and it's it's weird. I've certainly been fired from, laid off from, and quit enough jobs. You think I'd be used to one chapter ending and a new one beginning by now? No, absolutely. Yeah, it's. Uh, I I wasn't sure if we'd make it this far, but we have, and uh, it's a beautiful thing, guys. Um, you know, it it really is. It's it's been fun. The in your house series. Uh, like I said on a previous show, I like watching these because these are like forgotten pay-per-views so you know a lot of people will you you always know your royal rumbles your your summer slams your wrestlemanias but to go in and actually see the evolution of um the new generation into the attitude era has actually been a fun um a fun transition to watch in front of our eyes i mean we're coming from in your house one where you know you had brett versus hakushi razor versus jeff jarrett mabel versus adam bomb Owen and Yoko versus the Smoking Guns, Lawler uh, versus Brett, 
and then uh, Diesel versus Sid. Um, think about how many people on that first show are on this show. And would you think that Jeff Jarrett would have been one of those people? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's crazy to think that he left and came back and, you know, kind of re-entooled and reinvented his character. And, and now he's a tag guy kind of right now um, on this show that we're going to be watching. Yeah, Jeff Jarrett, uh, Owen also on both shows, and Jerry Lawler. And Billy Gunn. And one more. And one more. Who's the one more? Well, he's not an official match, but Mabel is on Valentine's Day. That's right. Yeah. So uh, it's just kind of. uh, Yeah. So if you think about Mabel, I mean, to go from Mabel to Viscera, you would, uh, Kevin, you would think he's put on a lot of like, you know, different outfit changes. I don't know. Maybe some costumes. Maybe. Maybe one or two. Um, I'm wondering where he could buy costumes especially if there's any site that has adult costumes especially if there's any site that also has adult plus costumes as well oh did you see the silent bob adult plus costume kevin i did my concern it's not there's a silent bob costume there is a blunt man costume from uh jane silent bob reboot movie my concern and i'm well aware of kevin smith's heart issues and the long process and his weight loss being a a fan of his but it seems odd that there is a kevin smith costume that has a regular and a plus size i would think they'd just make the one like a one size fits all Uh, just the plus size really and and i say this as someone who has dressed up as silent bob for halloween yeah you and the mangler mangler was jay of course for the coleman's party well, hopefully um, he was able to save money when he was doing his character changes. And you, too, can save money, of course, with our Halloweens.com promo. Save 20% off uh, now through October 31st. Really get a great Halloween costume. And if you go to fun.com, you can also save 15% off. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes and save some jingle jangle, but I am tasking the educator of excellence to come up with this week's item of the week. So educator, take it away. Do you have a wet bar you often visit between your yachting trips on the high seas? Do you have a slushy machine to make your favorite cocktails into an ice cold smoothie? Are you a fan of the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time series? Well, if you are, Fun.com has a combo pack for you. Start off your gaming experience with a collection of four vessels of officially licensed Legend of Zelda pint glasses, featuring character portraits from the Ocarina of Time series, including Ganondorf, Sheik, Link, and Zelda. These 16-ounce glasses are perfect for all of your cold beverages, whether it's strawberry daiquiris, Caramel vodka, apple cider slushies, mix and match, make it your all. Only on fun.com. All right, and we're back, and we are in the city of Memphis, in Memphis, Tennessee. We are at the Memphis Pyramid for St. Valentine's Day Massacre in your house. Of course, the date is February 14th, 1999. It is Valentine's Day. And there is 19,000 people at this venue. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And 
really cool looking venue, especially from the outside with it being the Memphis Pyramid. My question to you guys is how many men surprise their girlfriends or wives with tickets to St. Valentine's Day Massacre on Valentine's Day? And educator, you, you know, you're the man that, that bought, bought the wine rack for your, your lovely. How do you think your wife would take it if you surprised her with tickets to go see McMahon versus Stone Cold inside the steel cage? Oh, I'm pretty sure there would be some nuclear heat post uh, evening celebration. Let me tell you. Yeah, um, Kevin Hellions, um, you in the past have brought in significant others to wrestling shows. Um, how did those one? Uh, how did that work out? And two, um, how many of those relationships um, didn't last? All of them, correct? <laughs> did Elise ever go with you to to an event? Elise has done many events. Don't you remember the infamous me not realizing she's right behind me at the comic book store in Syracuse while we're heading to a 2CW show? Oh, yeah. I forgot we surprised you. What good friends we are. I forgot about that. Would have put us over. Thank you. Uh, but no, my I, I have an ex that I went to a CZW show with at the ECW arena. Um, she did not like it. She actually left and sat in her car by herself uh, towards the end. Because she in the in the middle of downtown Philadelphia. <laughs> that sounds about right. She was she was so disgusted with uh, some deathmatch stuff that she took off. And no one heard. That sounds about right. Yeah, you know, sensitive person that I was, um, I let her. And I stayed on the show. <laughs> but no, my my wife has gone. To- I like how she didn't take off, you know, because you know, Leave yeah, me, yeah, she was I your ride, that, you know. That, <laughs> No, you're right. My my wife's gone to like two CW shows um, with all of us. Uh, They used to run shows in Rome all the time. We did a big WWE show in Syracuse a while back. How do you think it would it would take if you took her on Valentine's Day? Uh, We don't really do Valentine's Day though, so I I think if there was something that she was interested in on it, she'd be into it. Um, She actually got really into women's wrestling when we were going to shows. I think if there's like a shimmer or some sort of women's tournament she'd be all in for it she also pretended to like wrestling and then once you guys got married she just stopped watching it yeah that was my wife too <laughs> and she, uh, she, oh wait 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 is that her is that her she had a child and has no free time Elise you don't have time to do a podcast I have time to yell at you right now <laughs> um yeah you know what my days look like what's that I'm going to be a teacher from three to, or from nine to three, and then I'm going to work five to nine, five nights a week. What am I supposed to watch anything? You know what Kevin's done? He ate a, he ate a donut this morning and he's done like 15 podcasts. (laughs) So Elise, now that I have you, I have you on the line. Let me ask you, what would you do if Kevin surprised you with tickets to a wrestling event on Valentine's Day? I wouldn't care. We don't do Valentine's Day. I mean, as long as I didn't have to work, we go. That's not good. That's not good for my show. You're supposed to say, "Go fuck." <laughs> yeah, that's not good content. Come on, beef it uh, up. Okay, uh, go. Is that better? <laughs> there I it is. I'm supposed to swear. Isn't this family friendly? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Now I gotta edit that. Matt, out. make sure you keep track of the time on here. You're probably gonna have a hard edit. Hopefully, it'll yeah. get caught. Um, 
So it's just kind of funny, though, to see that they really lean into the Valentine's Day tropes. Uh, we get that, of course, with our intro video featuring Crazy, uh, which I loved this intro video. Out of all of the Attitude Era ones that we have seen, I really, really enjoyed this with the song and then the interplay between um, Stone Cold and McMahon and just watching McMahon really getting driven crazy by Stone Cold. So what did you guys think of this intro? Yeah, absolutely. The the retro vibe with the music and so on, and just the 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 idea of just the culmination of all the history that has happened uh, between McMahon and uh, Steve Austin leading up to this event. You know, the reprise, I should say, not culmination, but the reprise of all the history between between the two, and then leading up to the big steel cage match later on uh, for Steve Austin's championship match at WrestleMania. It was a really good intro. I liked it as well. Say that song used too. They probably spent zero to little money on it. It's not like it was, you know, a big popular song that month, which we've seen edits for that they don't have the rights for anymore. But it, it worked. It was so different than, you know, Rock Band of the Week doing an intro here or Jim Johnson, nothing against him, but, you know, some random music he came up with. It was just uh, because it was so different, it really stood out. It was nice. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, of course, we are greeted by Michael Cole and the King Jerry Lawler. Uh, JR still not with us. Uh, and this pay-per-view was presented by Western Union. Uh, but why don't we get right into the first match of the night and we get another in-your-house debut. We get Gold Dust taking on Blue Dust. Uh, in essentially what is a squash match. Uh, what did you guys think of this match? And do you remember really the Blue Dust character from the Blue Meanie um, and just his run in general? I, I myself, I remember the Blue Dust character more in the spoof of ECW when he was a part of Raven's Flock and, you know, tagging with Stevie Richards and all that. This reprisal of the character was a very, very short-lived version of the character uh we remember meanie being technically a part of the job squad with al snow and bob holly and scorpio and so on for just a bit and uh now he's got his sights set on a feud with gold dust and is actually using gold Dust's entrance to the match and so on and his mannerisms and it's a, yeah you're right it was basically a squash match with very little offense by the blue meanie blue dust um at all in the match i mean meanie always he has a job to be a and he does it well and he did it well here like at no point did you think he was gonna win it but i just i love his character work anytime he's out there you're guaranteed to be entertained yeah uh educator you bring up a great point that you remember really the blue dust character on ecw going into the wwf uh my question to you is if we can relate it to modern times now do you think, number one, that the general audience was aware of the Blue Dust um, character in ECW when he was going to WWF? And could you make a case that now it's sort of like when someone gets called up from NXT going to the WWE where they may have this library of work, but really, um, you know, that story that you've told in NXT doesn't really carry over to the WWE just because of the audience difference? Yeah, I would say that, you know, probably the hardcore diehard fans would have definitely remembered the Blue Dust character. 
in my recollection, I, I vividly remember some of the, the backstage vignettes or the promos that they would shoot uh, with the ECW-style camera work and whatnot for the Blue Dust character. I don't remember too many actual matches. He may have you know, appeared ringside or gotten to the ring, but any active matches that the Blue Meanie had as Blue Dust in in ECW, I, I'm not recalling many, if any, at all. I, I definitely would look at it from the perspective you said today. You know, you've got guys that are, you know, honing their craft in in NXT, in you know the, our WWF's or WWE now's version of developmental, and they're figuring out their character work and so on. You know, some of the characters that get their push, so to speak, or they're called up to the main roster, yeah, they kind of continue on with the legacy, but many times they basically rebrand themselves, um, and it's almost like a reset button when they make it to the roster. And I, I don't, not too, too many are carrying over to the main roster today. I mean, it it's so different now, too. ECW at the time, you had to hunt for. I don't know how many times Educator and I would be like, what night is it on? Is it on Friday night? Is it on Saturday night? Is it on Sunday? Is it at midnight, two in the morning? Like, when is it on? When are we finding it? But there's also, we're in a bubble of smart wrestling fans. Like, we're all smart fans. Most of the podcasts we listen to, most of our friends, we're all smart wrestling fans. But we have all been to shows frequently together where we hear a conversation of people who aren't in on the joke and just stare in disbelief at things like oh you think this is real and i will guarantee you that there are people that were watching this that had no clue what ecw was they're just watching what was on monday night raw maybe switching between raw and nitro right i'll guarantee you there were fans that had never seen stunning steve austin in wcw but loved stone cold and thought they knew everything about him and to this day it's easier now with wwe network and the internet and stuff it's easier but I'm willing to bet there's, yeah, there's still fans that have, they watch Raw and or SmackDown and have never seen a second of NXT. I would be willing to bet. Yeah, it's just, you know, the, like I said, the whole, um, when you tell a story in one area and you try to bring it over to the next, you almost have to kind of retell it. But uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, break down this one for us, Mr. Educator. Absolutely. We see Goldust, who made his ring entrance to a pretty good crowd pop. He's down in the ring first to get ready to start the match. And then we hear the music, the exact same music again, as the Blue Meanie and the Blue Dust character does his entrance to the ring itself. I, I like the little touches that they WWF did with the blue fireworks, pretty much mimicking Goldust's fireworks during the entrance itself. In ring, we see Goldust essentially attack uh, the meanie as he's getting into the ring. We see Goldust, uh, Irish whip meanie into the ropes, and he catches the meanie and does a pretty decent-looking spine buster, given how big the blue meanie is. Blue meanie gets clotheslined by Goldust, and he ends up rolling out of the ring and begins stalling at ringside, only to basically draw Goldust out, who will follow him out, attack him, and then beal him back into the ring itself. Goldust then gets Meanie in the corner, sets up Meanie's both legs to do the Shattered Dreams punt to the groin. But Meanie is able to uh, escape the punt kick that was attempted by Goldust itself. He knocks Goldust down. He tries to set up for his Meanie salt, 
It's a pretty decent-looking moonsault for a guy of his size off the top rope. He sets up for the moonsault. He ends up missing the moonsault itself. Goldust gets up, recovers, and hits his final cut suplex-like slam that he was using as the finisher for the big 1-2-3 victory. Post-match celebration, Goldust is successful in getting meeting in the corner, getting both of his legs up, and he does his groin kick final uh, cut or shattered dreams, I should say, to the blue meeting. So, of course, I enjoyed this because it's just so over the top ridiculous. Like, I I love Meanie's shtick. I always have. And this was just hysterical. It's not, I, I wouldn't even call it a match. It's just a series of comedy spots. Like, if the Young Bucks was a comedy team that just did, you know, a series of super kicks, Blue Meanie's that for the comedy spots. Um. Are you guys familiar with what a weighted blanket is? Absolutely. I have okay. one myself. Okay. So if you could make a curtain out of a weighted blanket type material to make it very heavy, that would be the curtain call that Gold Dust had to do to Blue Dust here. Right. Because <laughs> he goes to pick him up and is just struggling. I mean, the right. angle, the everything about it. Credit for what he was able to do. I think a lot of it with that struggle that you're bringing up is the the gear that Blue Meanie had. He essentially had like an oversized onesie that he was wearing as gear for the match. And it was very, very um, flexible, we'll say, very revealing. (laughs) At one point, you know, Goldust does, uh, you know, a spot where he gives the Meanie uh, this monstrous wedgie. And, you know, he's able to yank that thing really up high and we're seeing things that we probably shouldn't be seeing or looking at whatsoever. And then also during the final cut when he, you know, would be grabbing onto his opponent's trunks and yanking back on that to pick the guy up into the air. When he grabs the pant leg of the Meanie's gear and he just yanks up on it and we see a lot of Meanie's thigh and hip and other things that probably we shouldn't be looking at. No, no, I mean, we were real close to seeing his yellow submarine. Um, also, interesting fact, you know, Treach, you mentioned that, you know, this is a debut of a, of a new character, a new person on WWF television. You also failed to mention there was another debut in this particular match. Referee Teddy Long. Oh, holla player eventually become a SmackDown GM. Holla holla. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? You know why he worked this match? Because he's synonymous with the blue brand. That's true. Oh, well, done. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, played. Um, yeah. So moving on match number two on the night, we see Al Snow with head taking on Bob Holly in a hardcore match for the vacant hardcore championship. Uh, what did you guys think of this one? I mean, there is uh, you, when I watched this match, I thought to myself, if this was done now, it would look so different. Like, it, cause it didn't seem like there was enough production for it, especially when they go outside with the lighting and different things like that. Whereas now everything's so well lit. They have, uh, you know, better cameras for everything. So I thought some of the action for this was a little hard to see when we, especially now when we compare it to, you know, what we have technology wise. It was an interesting match and they alluded to 
um, an attack that supposedly happened in the locker room. There was like a special Raw edition. It was a Saturday Night Raw literally the night before, and I believe it had been previously taped. I don't believe it was raw. Uh, it was live the night before. It, it was an interesting time um, in terms of both Billy Gunn and the Road Dog, in that you know Billy Gunn was in this feud with Ken Shamrock, and he was you know ha- having matches for the Intercontinental Title, and Road Dog somehow like became involved in the hardcore championship picture as well. And then we're getting right around in this time where I'm not sure if there was like a legit injury that road dog had, or if this was storyline kayfabe, but road dog is taken out of the match and, you know, stripped of the championship and they end up doing this hardcore Holly Al snow match, or actually at the time, Bob Holly versus Al snow match for the, uh, the vacant championship. And then within a couple of weeks um, on WWF television, all of a sudden there's just like this crazy change where now all of a sudden Road Dog is in the picture and winning the Intercontinental Championship. And then Billy Gunn is in the Hardcore Championship picture and wins the Hardcore title eventually from Bob Holly. So it, it's just weird how like the storyline just like all intertwine and get flip flopped uh, for no reason. You're right. In terms of looking back at this particular match, you know, being done today, I would think that this would be more of like what we're now used to current day with the cinematic presentation and, you know, better lighting, better sequencing and so on. They're just figuring this hardcore division out and just trying to take advantage of whatever they could around them. It was an interesting match. Um but lots of things that you couldn't really see what was going on because they're outside by the banks of the Mississippi river. It, it was fun for what it was. Uh, the, the post-match celebration, it just, it took them forever to get back into the arena, back into the ring, just to uh, award Bob Holly the title. Now I'm waiting for the educators footnotes. Cause there was a big mistake on Bob Holly's introduction when they were uh, running through his previous accomplishments in the WWF. Uh, The cup of coffee with the Intercontinental title and the cup of coffee with the Tag Team Championships? That would be the one. Yeah. He's not an official IC champ. It was weird in that on TV, he won the title technically from Goldust, but then they ended up holding the title up. And then the following night when it was, or the following Raw, which was taped the same night, I believe, the held up title ended up gold dust winning it back. So um, it is what it is. I mean, it's the revisionist history of them at the time, trying to give some accolades for Bob Holly and then making this win a little bit seem more, you know, prestigious, I guess, as they're trying to still get this, this uh, particular division off the ground. That's another good point. Like, cause we're so used to the hardcore title when it was 24 seven and anyone could have it. And of course the 24 seven, actual title now but at the time of this pay-per-view and the one beforehand they were treating hardcore title equal to i would say above european not quite an intercontinental intercontinental level but definitely above european title at this point so it was seen as a legit secondary title and a a push for someone that had it i just want to point out that i i would have taken this match off the card why so because you have a last man standing match which also battles through the arena True. True. I, I can see your perspective. Yeah. So I would only do one of those matches on the card. Move this to Raw. 
you know, hindsight being 2020, obviously, um, they weren't asking me 20, 20 years ago or whatever this took place. But no, um, I, that's just I, I always didn't like like if you're, you're going to do something in the later main event, call me an event match, why you would have it on an undercard match. I would say considering the the lighting and camera aspects, you said if the previous Raw on a Saturday was taped, this would have been a great match to do then. And then you could edit it together better and, you know, change stuff up, especially removing the five minutes it takes Bob Holly get back to the ring. All right. So we get the introductions of both Al Snow and Bob Holly. Al Snow ends up attacking Holly as he's getting into the ring to start the match. He throws Holly over the top rope onto the floor. On the floor, Al Snow hits Bob Holly with a pretty decent chair shot to the head. Again, as we've been going through the series and we see these chair shots, it's just it's it's still hard to watch again, knowing what we see today with concussion protocols and and CTE and all that stuff. So Sometimes these chair shots are just, it's really cringeworthy to watch. We see um, eventually the men are brawling back and forth. Uh, Bob Holly ends up slamming Al Snow onto a platform as they brawled out into the crowd, a standing platform to then go up into the risers to go into the crowd. We see Bob Holly grabbing a fire extinguisher and expelling the fire extinguisher onto Al Snow. And then he picks up what I believe was a glass bottle and smashes a glass bottle over Al Snow's head. The men continue to brawl backstage. We see Bob Holly ramming Snow's body into like uh, big old cases of uh, you know ring equipment and garbage cans that are backstage. We see Al Snow smacking Bob or Bob Holly with a telephone receiver. Uh, from a payphone, he's yelling, you know, reach out and touch someone, and then he smacks uh, Bob Holly with that telephone receiver. We see them brawl further into the back, and we see a big concrete pillar, and uh, there's a couple of random floor tiles, like ceramic floor tiles. Bob Holly picks up a couple of those floor tiles and smashes those over Al Snow's head, and they just essentially crumble. They're continuing to brawl backstage, which eventually leads to them getting outside of the arena. Just outside of the edge of the arena, there's a whole bunch of brooms and mops that Bob Holly and uh, Al Snow are using on each other. We see uh, Al Snow smashing a mop handle over Bob Holly's back. Holly, can they continue to brawl over to a grassy area near a fence and a wall, and there is a fire lane sign that Al Snow gets thrown into, and then Bob Holly essentially rips it up out of the ground, picks it up, and uh, smashes it over Al Snow's back. They continue to brawl. They uh, Al Snow ends up throwing Bob, uh, Bob Holly's body into a concrete wall. We see Snow, Al Snow choking Bob Holly with some barbed wire from a fence. Uh, meet my friend Barbie Wire was the comment that Al Snow made just right before he starts choking Bob Holly with it. Bob Holly uh, picks up a uh, a movable stop sign and slams it over uh, Al Snow's back. Unfortunately, I there was a wheelbarrow spot that I think that unfortunately got messed up as Al Snow tried to uh, or put Bob Holly into it and it got tipped over. And they decided not to continue with the wheelbarrow spot whatsoever. Or whatsoever. Uh, 
They continue to brawl back and forth towards the river edge of the Mississippi River. Eventually, Snow tosses Bob Holly into the river itself. The commentators are talking about how it's like 30 degrees outside, how ridiculously cold it is. Al Snow goes to dive onto Bob Holly, but Bob Holly essentially ducks. So Al Snow just basically plunged himself into the Mississippi River on his own. Continued brawling outside where Bob Holly smashes a uh, pretty thick-sized, uh, thick stick over Al Snow's back. And a piece of it breaks off and goes flying towards the cameraman and it hits the cameraman and you actually see the camera shake as the cameraman was hit and was recoiling from that. Bob Holly then uncoils or attempts to uncoil a roll of chain link fence that was on the ground. He gets a little frustrated with it, but eventually he does get it free. The men just continue to brawl back and forth near that chain link fence and Bob Holly is able to lay Al Snow out into the coiled roll or uncoiled roll, wraps Bob or Al Snow's body into the chain link fence, lays down on top of the fence, and Tim White does count for the big one, two, three victory. And Hardcore Holly, or what will become Hardcore Holly in a couple of weeks on television, has just uh, become or entered his first reign as WWF Hardcore Champion. What struck me a lot for this match, two things. One, I got to imagine Bob Holly and Al Snow were friends, at least at this point backstage, because there was a lot of trust and a lot of uh, openness and willingness to do certain things in certain spots and all. But also, I would imagine when they got to the arena, they planned it out. Okay, we're going to go here. We're going to go here. Camera guys will follow us. This is where we're going to do the ending. But everything they encountered along the way seemed so legitimate. Like, this is a thing you would find backstage. This is a thing you would find in the the trash outside of the arena. This is a thing you'd find up against the riverbank. And we have so many things, as hardcore matches became more popular, that are obvious plants of, you can see it, and it's like, okay, well, clearly they set up that, and that's going to be a spot, and, you know, five minutes into the match, where they'll go over here, and it's all gimmicked and, you know, rigged up and everything. But this just seemed like such a good, legitimate fight. Like, I enjoyed it. Um, the the one that really got me was the stick broken over and bro- breaking in half and then flying towards the camera. I was like, oh, my God. It just, everything seemed uh, to have a, a more intensity because it seemed so real and so violent and anything could happen in this match. Best match ever? No, of course not. But I just really enjoyed it before all the hardcore matches got too gimmicky. Kevin's going to try to get this into the top five, I can already tell. I mean, doesn't Al Snow deserve a top five match? No. He 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 was a head coach on Tough Enough. He trained legends like Nydia. You love Nydia. I did. <laughs> I don't know what she's up to anymore. Uh, another question, too, I have for you guys when it comes to this hardcore match is, how come we haven't really seen a match where they travel, go outside of the building, come back in. Cause we saw that a lot throughout the series. I mean, we saw that with the, the uh, executioner match, um, you know, going outside and, you know, we see it here. They don't really do that anymore. Now. Um, do you think that's something they should explore, especially with the pandemic era going on? Again, the, the idea of the, the falls can count anywhere. They're just, you know, we're conditioned with all the matches being in the ring and the finish happening in the ring. And now with this division happening or at the time happening with 
this the new stipulation of anything goes falls count anywhere and it's so new. I mean, we're here. We are. We're at the February pay per view, and the title was originally awarded to Mick Foley at the Survivor Series. So we're only like four or five months or so off the ground. They're just. I, I really think at the time they're just trying to, um, you know, take advantage of the new stipulation and new new match endings and things like that. Now here we are. What twenty five or so years later. Uh, 22, 25 years later, I think we've just we've seen so many of the endings that can happen. And at this point, they've kind of exhausted them all. We look at today in the 24-7 championship. I mean, it, it's a 24-7 championship, but it's not really a hardcore title. I, I mean, I really just, you know, at, at some point, I, I think there's going to become or it's going to transition into maybe the Raw Underground title. It'll be interesting to see what eventually comes of things as we continue through this COVID era pandemic. I, I like the idea of it becoming raw underground title that that could work. Um, I also think, considering that the person in charge of the company doesn't like it when people sneeze, that the further away you get from the ring and the arena, the less control you have over the situation. Um, I was watching the old ECW show where the fight pours out of the building into the street and there's cars going by, like fans pouring out of the building, probably other people in the neighborhood, and it just has this incredible sense of chaos to it. Right. There's not a chance Vince would be like, yeah, go out there into, you know, to traffic and to other people coming in and out, people maybe leaving the arena early or arriving late or tailgating or whatever. Sure, let's do that. I think it's a sense of control, and we see... Some of it with the the giant security guard that WWF had at the time that's following matches into the crowd and keeping an eye on things. And it's really he's there to make sure no one else gets involved because we had such passionate and belligerent fans at the time jumping guardrails and, you know, things like that. And then fights into the crowd that he alone was a sense of control. Yeah, big old Jim Dotson doing his job. Trying to maintain control. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up, that everything seemed legit, because now, like you said, when we do these gimmick matches, everything is so produced. Even when you're fighting through the crowd, you go up the stairs, everything's blocked off, and then when you get up to the concourse of an arena, they have another camera just waiting, not really chasing. There's one already there, and it just a lot of times can take you out of that element, especially if the match isn't good. Uh, whereas with here, it's like you guys said, it's more of that realistic feel that pulls you in. So, uh, But moving on, we have a WWF.com exclusive with the Ministry of Darkness. Uh, Taker is holding court and surrounded by the Brood. Uh, Big Vis Viscera, uh, the Acolytes, and Midian with Paul Bearer there. And he's just talking about how he's going to reign supreme on the WWF and and take over. Uh, what did you guys think of the the Ministry of Darkness? Did this do anything for you at the time? I just uh, two things from this particular segment. Um, number one, Christian and Gangrel and, and the whole brood, just them with the glasses on in the fire. They just look so badass. They really do. I, I really I wish a lot more could have 
could have come from that. I, the split up that happened, I think, too soon. There's so much more that they could have done. The other thing that jumps out at me is just the uh, the continued um, evolution of the accolades character. It was interesting to see Bradshaw and Farouk, like what they were wearing as they were surrounding, uh, you know, with the other members of the Ministry of Darkness. They've got the like the big black muscle tees on and then the black leather pants. It just Bradshaw in black leather pants just seems so out of place, so weird looking. And just knowing eventually what would come of these two as they're a part of the uh, of the Ministry of Darkness and then eventually separating, become the APA and the ballroom brawlers and so on. It's just it's so cool to see the evolution of especially the Bradshaw character. Great, great stuff. Um, yeah, it was such a great uh, great group of guys, you know, some who are, you know, were only meant to be fodder for others as well as mid card. And then, you know, you got the higher end guys that are in there. It, it was, yeah, great, great faction. So underrated and so much more that could have been done. I mean, the brood looks fantastic here. Like you said, brood makes sense. Uh, e- even if this is just a, you know, not wrestling, just a, a fictional story. Here's some evil dark Lord holding court. Of course, there'd be vampires there too. Makes sense. But everyone else seems like Island of Misfit Toys. Yeah, and then, of course, we follow that up with the big boss man taking on uh, Midian. Midian, of course, comes out with an eye and a glass jar. And uh, we go into this, I guess, heel versus heel mid-card match. (laughs) Um, I I wasn't too sure what they wanted us to think. Uh, but but what did you guys think of the match? Uh, I do have one note that Bossman did these punches in the corner onto Midian that sounded vicious. Violent. Mm-hmm. Very violent. I mean, it was just absolutely crazy. Unfortunately, the crowd was not at all invested in this match. I don't think they were at all invested in the the ministry versus the corporation feud that was starting to just bubble up. It was a tough match to sit through, but yeah, in my notes as well, I'm like, wow, these are like some very stiff sounding punches. Seen, you know, the boss man's known to be a very, very good worker, um, and just the they came off really, really well for the viewer watching this particular match. I mean, if, if educator wants to break it down, I have nothing but complaints, pretty much, about this match. <laughs> It, it it was a rough match to get through. Um, the finish just basically uh, the the ending predictable. I, I expected the boss man to go over originally watching this match back in the day, but the crowd is just flat. They're not at all invested in it whatsoever. There's no real heat. The, this heel versus heel dynamic really it, it didn't work out well and it didn't portray very well on television. So we start out with the match itself with what we just discussed. Bossman is working Midian in the corner with some very stiff-looking and sounding punches. Midian reverses an Irish whip into the corner and follows through the Bossman and clotheslines him into the corner. Bossman kicks Midian low in the groin area, and Midian then rolls out of the ring to essentially kind of escape and kind of walk off. Bossman follows and attempts to attack Midian with a chair shot. 
and swings the chair and Midian Duck smashing into the ring post for a really, really sound loud pop there. Um, would have been a violent contact had it happened. We see Midian biting and choking Boss Man in the corner itself when we get back into the ring. Boss Man follows an Irish whip into the corner, and throwing Midian in the corner and follows with an avalanche splash. Boss Man does one of his known sets of moves where he lays Midian over the second rope, bounds off the rope on the opposite side of the ring, and hurls his leg uh, drapes his leg over uh, Midian to clothesline Midian over the second rope. Then he does the same maneuver again, but instead does the baseball slide out of the ring and then does the big right hand and smacks Midian in the face. Midian ends up countering a full Nelson attempt that was being done by the big boss man and does essentially a waist lock belly to back suplex under the boss man. Midian counters Bossman's attempt of a pile driver and hits a back body drop onto the Bossman himself. Midian attempts an Irish whip into the ropes, but Bossman counters and is able to do a Bossman slam to absolutely no crowd reaction whatsoever. And the Bossman gets the cover for the one, two, three victory. Post match, we see uh, with even though Bossman had won the match. All of a sudden, the ring is being surrounded by the members of the ministry, and then Undertaker's music plays. And I don't know if you guys caught it, but this ver- the this version of the Undertaker music was like his old music, like pre-SummerSlam last year, before he had turned heel again and realigned himself with Paul Bearer. So I don't know if this was like a, a, a goof up with uh, backstage or whatnot and they hit the wrong track, but it wasn't his ministry music. But he ends up coming out to the ring and there is just a massive beatdown of the big boss man by all the members of the corporation or all the members of the ministry, I should say. And at the end, all of the members drag boss man out of the ring, pick him up and carry him out on his shoulders. And we see Midian who was able to pick up Bossman's nightstick from the ring. He hands it over to Paul Bearer, and uh, Paul Bearer essentially consoles him for losing, and then they all walk out together carrying the Bossman. So they start off this match, the announcers saying that this is a big man versus big man match. And I'm just questioning it. Like, yeah, Bossman's a big guy. I never thought of Midian in any character as a big man. When you have Undertaker and Kane and Mabel, Yokozuna, like those are big men. But in a way, it's kind of like, hey, Spider-Man's very strong. Spider-Man's a lot stronger than your average human. But when you're up against Hulk and Thor, you don't look like a strong guy. So even though these are big guys compared to, say, us, compared to who else is on WWF roster, they seem smaller. Um, I don't understand the headbutt to the chest maneuver that happens here um i don't under see that as hurting anyone other than yourself doing it the match is just so slow i've always all my life heard the phrase of someone sucking the air out of a room midian absolutely sucks every bit of air and energy out of the audience like boss man's fine he's doing all he can but midian's just draining everything from this uh, I honestly, like you're talking about Bossman stiff shots. I wonder if he was getting pissed off during this. Um, he being much more the veteran than Midian is. I didn't time this match. I didn't look into it. And uh, 
the the time stamps for matches I think are a little off for this because especially the main event, the official time stamp for how long that match lasted and how long everything takes place are two very different numbers. But however long this match lasted is double what it should have been. This just went on and on. Yeah, um, apparently and this match was about six minutes and twenty seconds or so. Was it really? It yeah, like supposedly. According to Wikipedia, it was only six twenty or six nineteen. Well, there was a there was another match on this card to me felt a lot longer than this one. But uh, whatever Midian was doing, because I'm kind of going with Bossman was a little ticked off for him. Not the sloppiest worker involved in this match, because if you saw Viscera's punches. They were the most lackadaisical, low-energy punches I've seen since that tag match with Sid way back when. You know, you were saying the hardcore match could be cut. This match could damn sure be cut from the card and not miss anything. Yeah, and even the Gold Dust-Blue Dust match could have been cut. Like, this first half of the pay-per-view was <laughs> This not... is a great... This is Yeah, this is a great two-hour pay-per-view. Yeah, yeah. If this would have been early on in the In Your House series, it would have been a lot better, but... Uh, so why don't we move on to a WrestleMania 15 commercial, and then we follow that up with Kevin Kelly interviewing D'Lo Brown, Mark Henry, and Ivory. Uh, you know, we get to see the evolution of the Mark Henrys going into the sexual chocolate, and I guess he's dating Ivory now. <laughs> what is going on with this? Dating. Yeah, dating is the key word there. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is Ivory's, I guess, pay-per-view debut um she was for those of you that aren't aware the original iteration of glow gorgeous ladies of wrestling she actually was a um a character on that in that particular promotion i don't know if it's just me and just not really looking back and realizing it to me ivory looks super old here and it's like she's got the reverse Benjamin button over time, and she just seems to get be getting younger and younger as we, uh, you know, as she progressed her WWE career and then eventually her Hall of Fame and all of that. So um, she just looked old to me and looked out of place. But they're just bringing her in as a character, as the next woman, so to speak, for the Mark Henry character or the Mark Henry sexual chocolate character uh, to be dealing with. Just un- unique introduction to Ivory. Well, I mean, I think it's just a, a, an evolution of someone's character, of the presentation of that character, and of their own workout regimen, I'll say. Um, how much money are we putting behind this person? Okay, it's worth investing more. Let's get better gear. Let's get more flattering clothes. Let's do better makeup. And then for a lot of them, as they are on the road more and say, okay, I can't work out like I used to. Let me do a new workout. And their body transforms. You see things. I think the biggest one today is if you look at what Dana Brooke looked like when she first started and what she looks like now, she's changed dramatically because that look doesn't work anymore for who she's become as a character. So I think a lot of Ivory is like, okay, I used to, you know, work out like this and do this thing, but now I'm on the road all the time. Now I'm doing these matches I need to change up how I work out, which changes just every bit of how she looks. So then we follow that up with Mark Henry and D'Lo with Ivory taking on Jeff Jarrett, Owen Hart with Deborah. So um, one thing of note I saw during this match is Jerry Lawler on commentary 
says that Owen is not wrestling in the shadows anymore. I heard that as well. Uh, Absolutely. And that kind of stuck out as a sore, you know, stuck out like a sore thumb to me. So, uh, Juan, what did you guys think of this match and any other insight? Uh, the match was definitely serviceable for, you know, a tag team championship match. It was pretty obvious that Mark Henry had some stuff going on. The size of the, I mean, he had a really huge um, leg brace on. And they ended up incorporating it into the storyline and the presentation of the match. I don't know if he had a legit injury or if this was a kayfabe thing going on. But utilizing that, I guess, just a, a new, a different dynamic in order to beat the big man, which kind of made sense itself. You know, you had mentioned that D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry were taking on the tag team champions. Apparently, the tag team champions were Jeff Jarrett and Owen. At least according to the graphic that was put on TV, apparently they ran out of room to write Owen Hart's last name, so he was just referred to as Owen itself. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it's Vince McMahon getting rid of people's names way back then, you know, like Big E and Cesaro. Um, you know, we're you're talking about Ivory's look for the previous one, but imagine getting the phone call as Ivory, like, okay, we want to bring you in. All right, what am I going to do? Am I going to compete for a women's title? Nope, you're going to be there as a counter to another woman, and we want you to randomly remove her clothes. Oh, okay. I'm getting paid, though. <laughs> like, talk about someone making the most of every opportunity she had. I know Educator, we've done it before, we're not doing it right now, has certain feelings about the WWF Hall of Fame, but I never doubted Ivory for it. I mean, she anything they gave her, any spot they put her in, she did the best with it and made it. She was fantastic, and you even see it here. Like, what's my job? I'll do it. I'll do it to the best of my abilities here. Always doing what JR says, make the most of your minutes and taking advantage of any any screen time opportunity you're being afforded. So just imagine watching this match back in 99 and then having someone tell you that out of all of the people in this match, Mark Henry would have the best career in the WWE <laughs> out of all of them. Which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. He would have been like your fourth pick at this point, out of the out of the man at least. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. So did you see anything good in this match there, Educator? Anything you want to break down for us? Um, No, I've got the whole match to break down. I thought it was a decent match for what it was. Mark Henry begins the match with Owen Hart, tosses Owen in the corner. He does an Irish whip and a very stiff clothesline onto Owen and then tags out. We see Jeff Jarrett eventually tagging as well. Jeff Jarrett hits an impressive looking drop kick onto D'Lo Brown. D'Lo Brown does recover and sends Jarrett into the ropes and catches Jarrett for a power slam as Jarrett's coming back off of the ropes. We see both Owen and Jarrett work together and perform a double clothesline onto D'Lo. Owen hits a spine buster onto D'Lo Brown. And then as he drops D'Lo for that spine buster, Jarrett uh, comes off of the second rope for a fist drop. So they're really starting to get into a groove of the double teaming aspect uh, that this informally named Canadian country tag team championship team, they're starting to really show that they can work well together. D'Lo Brown reverses a front suplex attempt by Owen. And then uh, Owen hits a very stiff-looking Enziguri kick to D'Lo Brown, goes for a pin attempt only for a two-count by ref Mike Chioda. 
Jeff Jarrett works a chin lock on D'Lo Brown to continue to wear down D'Lo through the match. Owen tags back in. Owen hits a spinning heel kick onto D'Lo Brown for another pinfall attempt, and we get a two count. At this point, I'm beginning to notice, and I don't know when you guys picked up on it, Lawler on commentary starts to sound absolutely awful. Like he has just got a horsey, raspy voice, and he is struggling to talk and to communicate. So he's just continuing to to push the match, and now at this point, it's almost like a distraction whenever you hear him on the microphone. Uh, With continued work back and forth, D'Lo Brown and Owen at one point, D'Lo Brown's in the corner. Owen Hart climbs up to the second rope and is starting to do what we would do the 10 pound, you know, 10 punch count. But D'Lo Brown in the middle of it uh, counters and picks up Owen for a running power bomb that Michael Cole referred to as the sky high, but they're not one in the same. He's always done the, the running power bomb and then the scoop up sky high power bomb are just two very, very different maneuvers. Eventually, Mark Henry gets the supposed hot tag, and he goes crazy. He starts clotheslining both the men in the ring. He then beals both men into the corner, so they're kind of stacked up in the corner. goes for an avalanche splash, but both men end up moving. So, you know, Mark Henry crashes into the corner. So now we have a four-man melee, and at one point, D'Lo Brown catches Jarrett who is trying to do like a leapfrog or maybe a hunakarana or whatnot onto D'Lo Brown, but he ends up catching him and does his kind of sky-high powerbomb for a two-count. I'm not sure why the referee counted because D'Lo had already tagged out and Mark Henry was supposedly the legal man. Now we start to see Deborah's involvement in the match. She climbs up onto the, uh, the ring steps in the corner where D'Lo Brown is climbing to the top rope trying to get ready to do a uh, his big old frog splash off the top rope. Eventually, Ivory gets involved as well, and now there's a confrontation at ringside between Ivory and Deborah, and D'Lo Brown is now trying to separate Ivory from Deborah. So inside the ring now, Mark Henry is by himself. He throws Jeff Jarrett into the ropes. He picks up Jeff Jarrett for a press slam, but we see Owen sneaking in with the guitar and then smashes the guitar into Mark Henry's braced leg, knocking Mark Henry down. Owen Hart then scatters all the evidence, the exploded guitar in the ring, as Jeff Jarrett locks on the figure four leg lock onto Mark Henry, and Mark Henry actually submits to the figure four leg lock, giving Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart the victory. Post-match, there was a very awkward angle and clothes-ripping attempt that we had mentioned here where, uh, you know, Deborah is getting her jacket ripped off by Ivory. It seems like Ivory ripped the jacket down the back, but she still has it on. And in an attempt to cover her body, uh, the tag team champions give Deborah their championship titles to do like a little cross over her chest so that none of her lady parts are exposed. Oh, different times, different times. <laughs> um, I, Owen and Jarrett are working so well together already. I loved every bit of their work. Um, speaking of love and work, we've said great things about D'Lo before he, it, Absolutely. Mark's injured and D'Lo has to work the entire tag match. He does a fantastic job, though. Um, Now, you guys, you know how WWF has the access thing before the big pay-per-views and you can go in and 
you know, see all of the displays and all, and they'll have ones for like Andre the Giant, like put your hand in his handprint or seeing someone's boots or whatever. I would like to add to that display the world's strongest knee brace because that thing wrapped around Mark Henry's leg looks like it could fit two normal person legs inside of it. That knee brace is massive. I give him credit, honestly, between his weight and everything, I give him credit for doing anything in the match. No, he didn't do much, but God, the amount of pain that he must have been in for that. It's not It's not a bad match. Um, everyone's doing all right. I wish we could have had, you know, the, the face team there of D'Lo and anyone else be at 100% to just have something better happen. And is there any gimmick for an object that explodes and looks more impressive than a guitar? Like, we've seen it a couple times now, but I, I never tire of guitar spots. It just always looks so devastating. It immediately looks like finisher. The guy's done. That's it. End of match. Every time. So cool looking still. Yeah, no, especially when it explodes. The only problem when it explodes, though, is then the ref plays dumb when there's pieces of guitar all in. I mean, yeah. that's the only bad thing about yeah, it. Yeah, it does make sense. But, uh, but yeah, moving on, we get Kevin Kelly interviewing Mankind. Um, and then, guys, do you want a free photo magnet? Yeah, so all you have to do is send in your cable bill or satellite bill and get a free photo magnet uh, showing that you purchased the pay-per-view. Is it a free magnet or is it a magnet that I'm going to win? Because Michael Cole really wasn't too sure about that. Oh, he's young. He's still young, not overproduced yet. So uh, I wonder if there's a photo magic in our new merchandise store or a photo magnet in our, our new merchandise store. I don't know. Why don't you uh, talk about that, Kevin? Well, there will be a link up with this episode but we have new merchandise store you can get the house show logo on t-shirts bedding my favorite one i noticed leggings ladies who doesn't want to wear house show leggings every one of you should great christmas gifts i have a question for you is and i want you to videotape this this christmas morning uh, educator when you give your lovely wife some house show leggings absolutely Comfy and, you know, suitable for any and all occasions. Do they have a blue dust onesie on there? No, no. Uh, well, I didn't see one. I'll have to check again. They did have drinkware, though, which I think a house show glass or mug would look great on a bar. A wet bar. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So go visit the store. The link for the store is right in the show notes. So, yeah give us some money (laughs) so then we get into uh, all right so we have val venus versus yeah it's not good val venus versus ken shamrock (laughs) we have the val venus versus ken shamrock sister act video of course val is all about ryan shamrock and we get a 16 minute match with was it really billy gunn it was brutal. As the special referee, and this was not a good match. This was probably my least favorite match on the card. This is the one that I said I would rather watch Bossman Midian for 16 minutes than watch these two go at it. For just no chemistry, in my opinion. No. And the third well, guy with Billy Gunn being in the match, trying to be the cocky, arrogant referee, 
you know, taking his t- sweet time to get down for, you know, counts, of, you know, for both men. And then all of a sudden turning at the last minute and causing the championship victory. And then the post-match, it didn't really make too, too much sense, or at least it didn't play out that well on TV whatsoever. Yeah, th- this was not good at all. My breakdown is just going to be of the finish at the end after, um, you know, Hallians puts his two points. Why don't we do this? Why doesn't this be Kevin's? Note match of the week. (laughs) There it is. Um, Because my question to you guys, too, is Val Venus is the face in this. Is he the good guy or is he the bad guy? Uh, You know, looking at it, it's it's weird in that we're getting now what appears to be the third heel versus heel match here between we got Midian and Boss Man. The last match we just reviewed with D'Lo and Mark Henry versus uh, Canadian Country. And now Val Venus, who I guess is kind of the face, but kind of a heel at the same time because he's courting Shamrock's sister. But then Ken Shamrock is being a goofy, overbearing brother. It, it's a whole thing. And regardless, the, the involvement of Billy Gunn. And then Billy, Billy Gunn technically is the face, right? Right. Billy Gunn, the DX face. But so. the the odd thing about that is when you think of a face special guest referee, you think of someone that's going to call it down the middle, not going to cheat. And all he's doing is he's making a mockery of it and joking around. He's, he, you know what he is? He is literally pulling from the Shawn Michaels handbook because he's got the short shorts on. He's got I, I mean, it, the, this is something Shawn would have done in his drugged out days. <laughs> Absolutely. Making a mockery of the whole thing and just prolonging the match, you know, from the competitor's side and that he's not really giving either one the advantage for the counts. And then, you know, suddenly decides, all right, I'm over this and does the fast count for the finish. So Hellions, I'm looking forward to your breakdown. God. So I knew there's going to be one on this card. And as I'm watching the show, I thought, all right, what match is treats going to say? Why don't you review it? And should I do more or less or pay attention? I thought, no, I will write my notes the same as I always do. And whatever match he selects, whatever. So now what, what we're going to do now, guys, going forward is you will have one match every episode, <laughs> Kevin, that you will break down. We're not going to tell you what match it is. It could be the main event. Well, you'll know if it's the main event, if we get to the main event and you haven't done it yet. So it's going to be a surprise. It's we're going to start it with the Halloween Havoc. It'll be your trick or treat. Nope. Match of the week. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll go from there. But yeah, Mr. Hallians, take it away. Okay. Vail Venus versus Ken Shamrock. Special referee, Billy Gunn. Vail Venus with Ryan Shamrock. Billy Gunn laying on the ropes. Ken Shamrock looks smaller. Ryan Shamrock looks lost. Billy Gunn is fantastic here. Steals the show. Vail shows incredible strength throughout the match. Ask him. Ask him what? Ask him. Ask him what? Billy Gunn won't make the three count. Big scoop slam by Shamrock. Slow two count. Billy's slow counts keep getting better and more entertaining, but worse for the for Ken Shamrock and Val Venus. Sloppy double effort Hurricane Rana by Ken. Ankle lock by Val. Ryan pulls Val to the ropes. Ken yells at Ryan. Ryan slaps Ken. Ken shoves Billy. Billy hits Ken. Throws him into the ring. Val rolls him up. Fast three count. Vale wins. Ken and Billy fight in the aisle. Vale celebrates. Billy comes back to beat up Vale. And scene. Bravo, Kevin. Bravo. 
<laughs> one star review, baby. One star. <laughs> yeah, there's just not. This is not a good match. It's disappointing, too, because you feel like Val and Ken could have put on a decent match. You know, when we would we go through these cards and you look at the card and you say, oh, we got the battle of the big men. You know, this will probably be bad. You kind of play it in your head. And this is one of those match where looking on the card, I'm like, oh, this could be pretty decent. And then seeing, oh, wow, it was given 16 minutes. You would think they would put something good together, but they don't. Not at all. I like Billy Gunn's work. I thought Billy Gunn was hysterical in this. See, I didn't. He was more annoying than anything to me. Yeah, I got the the annoying vibe as well. I mean, I know that's what he was going for to annoy the heels, but he was annoying the people watching at home, the viewers. Yeah. All right, guys. It's not just a sock. It's an adventure. <laughs> the Mister Socko T-shirt. Uh, what a great T-shirt this is. I would wear it now. What do you guys think? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. I wonder, okay, wearing it now is one thing. If you wore it then, how much, in public, non-wrestling show, how much explanation would you have to give to anyone seeing that shirt? Yeah. Have you ever worn a shirt that you had to explain to people, Kevin? I know you were into the big Johnson shirts growing up. I was not. My brother was. He wore them all the time. I did not. If you recall, I worked at a t-shirt store for a little while and then had free, air quotes, free t-shirts that I wore for the next, like, five years from there. Is this part of your blog? No, this is pre-blogging with uh, Aussie Outfitters shirts. Has there ever been, like, a shirt that you've gotten compliments on or people said, hey, you know, like, great shirt or laughing or just looking and, like, with a puzzlement look on their face? Um, I had to explain the Team Hellion shirt that I was wearing. Um, looking back, I may have put, uh, well, at least got them for me, but I may have put uh, the name of the site on it. You know, just for a little shorthand there. I've had to explain who random comic characters are to people who don't know. You know, if, if you know and read the comic, you'd know, but uh, Ghost Rider was a big one that people weren't familiar with when I, back uh, early 90s. Why do you have a flaming skull on your shirt? A member of the DLA. Uh, educator what about you was there anything you wore that uh there was um a college hat that had and i don't i honestly i'm drawing a blank but the logo was c-o-c-k-s i don't want to say it to bleep it out but i just i remember having that hat. oh the gamecocks gamecocks Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so i had that hat um i think i had one big johnson t-shirt as well uh that i wore it was probably like my junior year of high school same thing with the hat um but no i didn't really go out of my way to, to wear weird stuff that i would have to explain to others what's going on i uh i remember <laughs> this is funny this is why people hate like white kids <laughs> so <laughs> So I remember working, <laughs> Kevin, and you, we worked at the same job, and FUBU came out with the uh, uh, Fat Albert collection of clothing, and I was, like, obsessed with it, like, just wearing Fat Albert on my clothes as, like, a 15-year-old white kid from the suburbs. Like, looking back on it, I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, not at all. I mean, I was a mid-twenties white kid from the suburbs, and yeah, I bought the shirt that said Proud Nubian Brother. <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot. Wow. <laughs> Why did you buy that shirt? 
I look like a cool shirt, and then you all dared me to buy it, and then I had to, and then I never wore it in public. Yeah, of course everyone remembers Mr. Korea 2000. I have that shirt still. Does it still not fit? It still doesn't fit. <laughs> I can't imagine why. It doesn't fit even more right So now. we found it. So just so everyone knows out there, we found a shirt. Uh, why did we call it Mr. Korea? It was just like... Because it was like Korea Olympics or something like that. And little anime drawings on it. Yeah. And it's bright yellow. Like highlighter yellow. Yeah. And uh, we made Kevin buy it and put it on. And it did not fit well. It, it might fit my kid. But it's super stretchy. So I can I can squeeze into it. And then it just shows everything. I look like blue dust. Yeah. It's just funny going through and seeing the fashion. I think Mr. Sacco you can get away with. Uh, it's like when I wore that Undertaker tie to your wedding kevin exactly you know, you can get away with it so actually after that and all that t-shirt talk why don't we uh, take a quick little break and we will be right back promotional consideration paid for by the following have you been in a long-term relationship and you're not sure what to get your significant other for their birthday anniversary or valentine's day well, let the Masked Library answer those questions for you, because he has a new book coming out called A Death Match Made in Hellions. Learn how to seduce her with a rendezvous that's sure to make her queasy. Shower her with blood as someone takes a light tube to the head. Show her that those just aren't butterflies in her stomach when she sees a no-name indie dive headfirst into a bed of thumbtacks. Make sure you wrap her up in your love and barbed wire this year. So make sure you buy a deathmatch made in Hellions from Kevin Hellions. Coming very soon to audiobook on the House Show podcast feed. Hello everyone, it is your favorite podcast host, Maddie Treats, and I am here to tell you about a game that is sweeping the nation. It's good for ages 2 to 200. It is Name That Glover. That's right, Name That Glover, the famous podcast game from the house show, comes to you in person. Take it on the road or take it home. You know what? Play it any day of the week. The game is simple. You get a description of a man with the surname Glover, and you have to name that Glover. This Glover was a baseball pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Can you name that Glover? If you said John Gary Glover, you win! Alright guys, one more round. This Glover is a British professional rower and was in the 2014 World Rowing Championships in Amsterdam. If you said Helen Glover, you are correct! So if you're like us, and 
you love the glove, then you must be a G-lover. So come on down and play Name That Glover. All right, guys, we are back and we get are greeted by a video of China turning on DX and joining the corporation. Uh, what did you guys remember of this uh, storyline? Not really too, too much. I remember the culmination of at WrestleMania where it looked like China was turning back and becoming a member of DX. But in reality, they were turning on Kane and kicking Kane out of the corporation and Triple H ended up turning on Xbox later on at WrestleMania 15. You know, it was just basically a couple weeks storyline to eventually get Triple H to become a heel member of the stable itself. Um, I don't remember too, too much more other than the, it was just a setup for this pay-per-view and then eventually WrestleMania. I mean, there's in this short overall time of the In Your House series, there's so many things where it's like, okay, DX already started and now they're breaking up. I wonder if there was a, an attempt to not have things get too stale and not have things go too long so that they kept refreshing things like that. Because I remember hating trying to turn it on DX, but looking back like this, I thought, well, what else were you going to do with her? This makes sense to just do something different, progress the storylines forward, let everyone grow. Uh, yeah, I think that's just the natural progression of you know, how it would go. And in storyline wise. So anyways, we get the DX, which is Triple H and X-Pac taking on Kane and China in the first and first ever intergender tag match or mixed tag match, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what do you have for notes and what do you think of the match? First enter intergender tag match. I guess that WrestleMania match with Macho Man and Dusty and Sensational Sherry just is wiped from everyone's memory. I don't know. <laughs> well, is it? The could the women battle the men in that one? Yeah, that's probably what they're referring to as the first ever. So I guess it kind of makes sense from that storyline point. One thing that stands out for me in this particular match is the dynamic of China, like yelling at Kane, screaming at Ch at Kane, tag me in, I want in kind of deal and that dynamic throughout the match like she was kind of holding some power over Kane they alluded to on commentary there a storyline about how McMahon is is threatening you know Kane sending him to the insane asylum or the mental hospital or something like that so it was kind of cool the the overpowering over demanding you know mentality that China had over Kane itself the this match just shows how limited china was in her abilities in the ring i mean other than like her big forearms that she's able to throw like anything else regular move set wise wasn't at all impressive whatsoever she looked a little different not being in heels and being in you know flat kind of like rustling boots and having knee pads on but it just it just goes to show yes she was trained by kowalski of course she's you know Behind the scenes, she's a you know a paired up thing with Triple H, but she was so limited in the ring, and it just goes to show that Triple H and, and Waltman X Pac had to do a lot to, to to at least make her stuff look good. 
Well, I think that shows some very smart booking here, though. She has a relationship with Triple H and X-Pac. They can trust each other in the ring. They can cover weaknesses. They can build for strengths. It makes sense for Kane to be able to take on both Triple H and X-Pac. He's such a big guy. He could handle two opponents like that. Like, for who they put in this match to cover, to get her in there, but cover her as well, everything makes a lot of sense. It's actually kind of impressive how much thought I have to imagine went into planning out and booking this match for her debut. All right. So we see the match begin with Kane and Triple H brawling uh, in the ring. We see Kane clotheslining Triple H as Triple H is uh, able to reverse an Irish whip. He sends Kane in the corner, charges into Kane or towards Kane. Kane picks up the big old boot and boots Triple H in the chest and the chest and face, knocking him down. We get continued back and forth, and eventually X-Pac is able to tag in. He's he, As he's working with Kane, he does his fancy two kicks and then roundhouse kick to Kane as Kane is in the corner. Eventually, China tags into the match, and she hits a pretty stiff forearm and a shoulder tackle onto X-Pac. X-Pac recovers and sets up China for a Bronco Buster in the corner, but China, before X-Pac is able to leap, is able to roll out of the way and get out of the ring itself. Uh, Kane and Triple H get back into the match. Kane eventually climbs to the top rope and does his diving clothesline off the top rope onto Triple H. China tags in and forearms Triple H and uh, is able to uh, allow a front suplex attempt to get countered, and she is able to front suplex Triple H in return. China body slams Triple H and then hits the ropes and attempts to drop an elbow, but Triple H rolls out of the way. We see Kane missing what is essentially almost like a, a stinger-like splash into the corner onto X-Pac as X-Pac moves out of the way. We see DX double-team and do a front suplex onto Kane, and then a double-team DDT onto Kane. Outside of the ring, X-Pac, um, or Kane misses X-Pac as he's charging towards X-Pac and essentially rams himself into the ring post. X-Pac then turns around and attacks Shane McMahon, who originally came down to ringside right at the start of the match and was sitting on commentary. And listening to Shane throughout the match was just a good reminder as to why they eventually took him off commentary because his he was just super obnoxious on commentary. We see X-Pac attacking Kane on commentary, knocking him down, and then getting back involved into the match. China tags in and does a essentially a power slam onto X-Pac, who was running off of the ropes, and gets a two-count from referee Tim White. China picks up X-Pac and uh, essentially crotches him onto the top rope. And while Kane was standing on the ring apron corner, he follows up with a clothesline onto X-Pac. China catches X-Pac into a or catches him into a wear-down sleeper hold. X-Pac is able to counter that sleeper hold with a side suplex to China. Triple H tags in and finally is able to get some offense onto China. He ends up clocking her in the face twice with a hard right hand. Triple H back body drops Kane over the top rope onto the floor. Triple H uh, sends China into the ropes and follows up with a high knee 
to China's face, one of his signature maneuvers. X-Pac then hits a Bronco Buster onto China. And as after he gets off of China from the Bronco Buster, Shane McMahon gets into the ring, kind of like clotheslines uh, X-Pac in the back. But X-Pac is able to immediately get up, confront Shane, and essentially chases Shane away from ringside back towards the locker room. So now Triple H is essentially by himself. He gets back into the ring. He goes to Pedigree China for after she is recovering from the Bronco Buster from X-Pac. But Kane runs in, makes the save, and grabs uh, Triple H by the throat and does a choke slam onto Triple H. Kane then drags China's body over a laying Triple H, and China gets the pinfall. One, two, three, victory, pinning Triple H. You know, like you were saying earlier, is China a great wrestler here? No, of course not. But I think this is where the ninth wonder of the world moniker comes in, much like Andre was the eighth wonder of the world. She's an attraction. There's nowhere else you're going to see a woman with this build hanging with men of bigger build and keeping her own. Yes, I'm seeing flaws in China's ring work. We all are here. But you can't deny how much of a groundbreaking thing this is for her. You know, for all of wrestling and all. I think she did as well as she was going to do at the time. I think everyone took good care of her. You know, we certainly saw a lot more from her later on. It wasn't a bad match overall for telling the the larger story. And uh, one of the weird, uh, just one of the minutia things I noticed is uh, because Triple H takes off his DX stuff and he's got the China Syndrome shirt underneath it and then tears that off symbolically. But then he's wearing his long trunks, which are red and black, which are Kane's colors. And I'm like, not a chance in the world they would allow them to have the same colors now. Because we've heard all sorts of rumors of, oh, you can't wear gear that color. That's someone else's colors. But it was just, you know, a tiny little thing. But notice it, thought it was funny. Um, It is a history-making match. But like many first matches we've seen, the first, you know, triple threat match we saw in this In Your House series. It's not great yet. But it's historical, and you need to do the first one so you can build and make them better later on. Also, too, thought it was interesting that he was wearing the red and black. It almost looked like him and Kane should have been the team. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting you point that out, though, because out of the three men in this match, every one of them has formed a team with China. Uh, but why don't we go ahead and move on as we get The Rock versus Mankind. We get a video recap of The Feud, and then we get... The Rock versus Mankind in a last man standing match for the WWF Championship. Now, Kevin. Yeah. Okay, so on the last podcast, yep. you talked about The Rock versus Mankind and how you thought that match could have scraped the top five. Yeah. I think this was the match you were talking about. I I actually have in my notes, which I've already read my notes for a match this episode, but in my notes, I have a top five with a question mark. This match was really friggin' good. Um, my, oh. The only complaint is the end. It, yeah, the yep. finish. But the I, finish is very frustrating. It's frustrating, but I don't mind it because I've seen that finish in actual MMA, in boxing matches where both guys are just so exhausted that, you know, the match ends at the same time. But... This, like I said, this match is the match I think you you watched like a week earlier 
Um, because I I loved this match. I thought it was great. And I get the ending. I get being bothered by it. I was too, but damn, they pull it off so well. Yeah, the timing of it was excellent. Yeah, timing was really good. And it almost looked like too that when they both hit each other in the head with a chair, like Rock could have, with the way he landed because he bounced off the ropes, it almost looked like he could have grabbed on and had the ropes hold him up. Yeah. Right. Right. But uh, but educator, why don't you go ahead and break down the match for us, and then we will see if this can crack the top five. All righty. So we see the start of the match with Mick Foley in the ring as the Mankind character. He continues to turn his back and face the turnbuckle and puts his two wrists behind his back again as a as a mimic to the the Royal Rumble spot where he was handcuffed and was beat on by The Rock. He does this a couple of times just to really throw Rock off, but Rock still ends up attacking him anyway. At one point, Foley takes his championship title that he had left laying near the corner of the ring and hits Rock over the forehead with it. We get our first count attempt uh, at the uh, you know last man standing, and Rock ends up getting up at an eight count. The men then brawl out into the entrance of the arena, Rock and Foley trade, throwing each other back and forth into the metal entrance set. We see Foley hit a DDT onto the Rock after they were uh, fighting up on a table near the backstage area with a bunch of monitors on it. Foley is able to stand up at a seven count. Rock barely makes it up at a nine count. Rock does a belly-to-back suplex onto Foley onto the concrete floor. Foley is able to get up for after a five count from referee Earl Hebner back into the ring. Foley body slams the rock and sets up for his rendition of the people's elbow. But when he goes to drop the people's elbow on the rock rock ends up rolling out of the way. We see them brawling outside of the ring again at ringside and rock does three front suplexes onto uh, Mick Foley. They go for a count, but Foley is able to get up. Before the 10 count, Rock ends up going to the commentary table and steals Michael Cole's headset and tells him to get out of here. And now uh, Rock is doing his own commentary. Eventually, Mankind recovers from those three front suplexes and then dives over the table and starts attacking Rock while Rock is still wearing the headset and the microphone. Rock is dropped over the commentary table. Um, He's laying on his gut with his head kind of dangling off towards the ring. uh, Mick Foley climbs up to the ring apron and does a running jump off of the ring apron with an elbow to the back of Rock's head, who ends up tussling off of the table and onto the floor. Foley then throws the Rock into the ring and then picks up the top section of the ring steps and hurls them over the top rope, which... I actually thought was kind of an impressive looking feat for Mick Foley. I never really thought of Mick Foley as a super strong character or person, but for him to launch those ring steps over the top rope into the ring, I thought was actually quite impressive. So Foley brings the ring steps into the ring. He attempts to charge rock who is now recovering and is standing up in the corner. He attempts to charge rock to slam the ring steps into the rock's face, but the rock is able to put the boots up and stomps on the steps and causes them to rebound back onto Foley. Foley then, um, or the rock, I should say now brings a chair into the ring after that step bump and hits uh, mankind four times in the bad knee that was worked on earlier in the night during a Sunday night heat attack. 
his fifth chair shot swing attempt onto Foley ends up missing and he does the rebound spot where the chair hits the top rope and bounces back and hits rock in the face. And that got a pretty good raw crowd pop itself back on the floor. Uh, Foley does a running swinging neck breaker onto the rock. Foley tries to do a pile driver, um, to the rock who is positioned on the announce table now and the rock ends up reversing it and does a back body drop to Mick Foley. And when his body got flung from the back body drop, the back of his head kind of hit the edge of the announce table that they were standing on and his legs ended up hitting, um, the timekeepers table and the timekeepers bell. It was, uh, uh, Pretty gruesome looking fall that Foley ended up having from that back body drop. As the rock is uh, getting back into the ring and Foley is starting to crawl over towards the ring itself. The rock picks up those ring steps that Foley had brought into the ring and kind of press slams the ring steps from inside the ring over the top rope and drops them onto a laying McFoley's body. It was a pretty gruesome looking spot. Actually, those ring steps coming crashing down on McFoley. The rock body slams McFoley back into the ring and kicks the shoulder over and ends up setting up for the corporate elbow. The rock bounces off of the ropes twice and does, in fact, get successful hitting the corporate elbow. Then the rock grabs the microphone from Howard Finkel and he starts to sing a rendition of the Smackdown Hotel. Towards the end of that rendition, McFoley then does a barehanded mandible claw in the flailing of Rock trying to escape the mandible claw, there is a ref bump where Rock accidentally knocked or accidentally, I say, ends up knocking the referee down. So when Foley is successful bringing Rock down, there is no referee count. So we see Mankind go out of the ring, pick up referee Earl Hebner, drag him into the ring, and then proceeds to kind of like how Austin did it to McMahon in a previous show. He starts counting one two, three, four. And by the time he gets to five, Earl Hebner now starts to recover and starts resuming the count at six. Eventually rock is able to get up from the mandible claw before the 10 count. We see the rock hitting a low blow onto Mick Foley and then hits a DDT in the middle of the ring. Foley is able to answer the ring count by six. Foley then hits a double arm DDT onto a chair that was in the ring to the rock. The rock is able to answer the uh, ring count by ten, uh, by a nine. We see Mankind dig into his trunks or his sweatpants and pulls out Mr. Sacco and does the mandible claw. But the rock counters with a kick to the groin and does a rock bottom onto uh, Mick Foley. Both men are able to get up and answer an eight count from referee Earl Hebner. Both men then straggle over to their chairs. There are two chairs that were now in the ring, and they do the double chair shot spot where they swing and hit each other simultaneously. Both men knock down. Neither men are able to answer the uh, the 10 count, so the referee calls for the bell, and we hear Howard Finkel to an audible groan to the crowd uh, announces the match as a draw. Post-match, we see... Um, all the referees uh, essentially come down and start checking on both men in the ring who are laid out. And then we see EMTs uh, with two stretchers come down. In Rock's case, they put a collar around his neck and lay him, get him on a backboard and pull him out of the ring. They strap him to a stretcher and they wheel the Rock out. 
Foley is uh, sitting up in the ring um, at one point and is talking to the medical officials. But as they're wheeling Rock out, all of a sudden we see the camera back and now Foley is laid out also on a stretcher and is being wheeled out as well. And then we see both ambulances in the back being loaded up with each one man in each and both ambulances drive out selling the point of the brutality of the match. It's such a good match. There's so much going on. The the wrestling great, the fights great, every bit of it. But also there's like so many callbacks and minutia to it, fully putting his hands behind, you know, to echo the Royal Rumble. That chair bouncing against the ropes we've seen before. Um but then there's little things like mankind's wearing a WWF superstars tie. You know, um, fully has the hole in his tights, which Vince pointed out on a previous in your house. You got a hole in your in your gear. This is why I'm going with the corporate champion, not someone like you. The the one that got me is when they go through the table and the monitor lands on Rock's face, and the monitor is showing itself on Rock's face in like this infinite loop. There's just so many little things that I got such a kick out of. Um, question though because of what happened at the royal rumble and because of spots like that back body drop when fully lands on two different tables is gross the steps fall coming down from the ring onto them is gross in internet age and we can give examples of where the fans have done it would rock have been labeled as an unsafe worker today that that rock of early 99 with those matches against fully and the things he did, could you have seen the internet turning on him and saying he's unsafe? I don't think so, but I, I think the reasoning is, number one, it's always been against Foley. It's not against anyone else. And True. they're not performing just regular moves that hurt someone. I mean, they're doing specific spots to look violent. I gotcha. Um, it's it, it's it, kind of like case in point, like Sammy Guevara, um, Matt Hardy. I don't think Sammy is a unsafe worker. Um, no. Obviously, he made a mistake with the chair. I mean, that would be the one thing when he threw the chair that wasn't folded properly, and he nailed Hardy with it. But then you have them jumping off the thing onto the two tables. It's a very violent spot, but it's, it's no one's fault. So. You know, when I think of an unsafe worker, I think of someone that is performing and doesn't catch a person or drops them wrong or doesn't drop them when they're ready, that sort of thing. Yeah, you're sloppy with suplexes or power bombs, but not a crazy spot with a chair, a table, a something that has a third thing here that could go wrong. Correct. That's a good point. Yeah. Um other question now we you know treats has gone to many pay-per-views recently we've talked about expensive tickets and everything how much do you think the tickets were that were under the seats that mankind and rock after the table spot went and fought into those chairs where there were people hanging out (laughs) i'm sure that's probably just people that were backstage like family friends or whatever yeah i don't think those were for sale yeah, those those seats probably were like lower bowl seats that they had to pull away so that they had space for the entrance ramp yeah. and all that stuff and staging. Uh, yeah, I think those were just maybe backstage staff 
that were there or arena workers. I don't think those were fans that were actually sitting in those empty empty area seats. It, it was the little kid eating his nachos in one of the chairs that got me. I was like, buddy, you need a better seat. Mom or dad should have bought you a more expensive ticket. Well, they bought the nachos, so they didn't have the price there for the you seats. They, you know. There you go. Nachos are probably 20 bucks at least. And then the drink, you know. I th- This was a great match, though. I mean, yeah, we can, when we finish up this one, we can debate. But, man, I love this match. Yeah, I loved it, too. Um, like I said, the angle at the end, um, as much as it's unsatisfying, um, especially, too, because... Where do they go? I mean, Rock wins the belt and then takes on... No. What is the main event for 15? Was that... Austin. Austin. Rock. So when does Rock win the belt? He wins... I can't, I don't remember if it's the next night on Raw or the week after, but they end up having a ladder match and the big show gets involved and choke slams fully off the ladder and Rock is able to climb the ladder and get the title. Like, you almost think... That which is why then at WrestleMania Foley and Big Show ended up having a match to see who would referee the main event. It's just it's really random that this isn't like you have this match. Obviously, like you almost wish this match would have taken place at the Rumble and then your ladder match is at the next pay-per-view rather than being on the Raw because it's just it's a little weird. I was I was just like, you know, as we're going through and we're taping the show right now where I'm going back and I'm like, they had such. Like a huge rivalry because you have the Survivor Series main event of the tournament where Rock joins the corporation. You have the Rock bottom match where Foley wins technically, but because the Rock didn't submit or say I quit uh, and wasn't pinned, he didn't win the title. Then you have the Raw. Um, it was right around Christmas where Foley wins his first championship when with Austin's interference in the chair shot. You have the Royal Rumble match where Rock wins the title back. You have the halftime heat super show where Foley wins the title back from the rock with the forklift and the pallet and the, in the, uh, the crate of what I think they were like, uh, beer kegs or something like that. Now you have this match, the last man standing match at St. Valentine's day massacre. And then you end up getting the raw, the ladder match where big show interferes and chokeslams Foley allowing the rock. So, I mean, they had just like a fantastic, probably six months uh, of just matches back and forth the brutality that these guys, you know, endured going through this. It was just such a great, great feud. And then down the road where the rock ends up becoming a face and then they end up doing the rock and sock connection stuff, such great chemistry between both men, such a pleasure to watch. You know, as we're, as we're watching these and we've been watching the, in your house shows, I think whenever we see chair shots to the head, we we talk about how vicious they are now, and we you know knowing what it causes with CTE and different things like that. Have either one of you gone back and watched that Rumble match where Foley takes was it twenty chair shots to the head or whatever it is? No, I I have not watched the match itself, but I do remember um, the the movie. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on its name where they're the behind, behind the, the scenes. Yeah, beyond the mat. There we go. Where originally the plan was what? Help me out, Helen. It's like two or three chair shots. Yeah. It was supposed to be, and it ended up being in double digits. And he just, Rock just kept going. I don't know if he just got carried away in the moment or if Foley, you know, was telling him, let's do more, let's do more, and then didn't remember 
after the fact, you know, that he kept calling for those chair shots. I'm just, I, I'm really curious too, and I, I was thinking about going back and watching that match just to see, because I remember it being brutal at the time, but how much it would be amplified now. And even more brutal because they were so like unprotected chair shots to the head because Foley had his arms handcuffed behind his back. So he couldn't at least get a forearm up and deflect anything, any of the energy from the impact. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure it would be just very cringy to watch. All right. So why don't we move on to our main event of the evening? Once again, it is not the title match, but it is Stone Cold. So Stone Cold Steve Austin is taking on Vince McMahon inside a steel cage match. Um, what did you guys think of our main event here? For me, uh, the main event itself the only two things that jump out are the table bump that McMahon takes, which I think it's pretty well documented that he ended up breaking his tailbone uh, from that spot itself, but somehow still ended up finishing the match. And the only other thing that stands out is the debut of the big show, Paul White, and the uh, the cage spot where he flings Austin in the cage and that rips the door open or where it rips the side of the cage and just the cage itself swings out and allowing Austin to get to the floor kind of unsuspectingly for me, I, I really didn't think it was a great match. It just, it just shows how awkwardly uncoordinated McMahon himself is as jacked to the gills as he is as great of a storyline as it is of the boss and the versus the employee. It just it goes to show that you know McMahon has no business really being in the ring, um, and I believe this is the last match of the old school steel cage. I'm pretty sure many stories have come out that Vince McMahon working this particular match is why they changed the the old big blue, which was painted black for this pay per view, the old big blue cage that's easy to climb to the meshy light cage that they ended up transitioning towards later. I mean, just the cage alone, we have so much stalling to get the cage set up. And we've seen the, the mesh cage already before, so this is brought back clearly just to do the spot at the end. But the match is full of... It's it, it's not the culmination of Austin McMahon, but it's certainly the end of a chapter. Um, McMahon kind of painted himself into a corner. He's stuck in this match. You know, he's got to go through with it. It's a lot of stalling. It's a lot of buying time until the end of the pay-per-view and to get your mania set up. But there's nothing, you know, to give a star rating to or to, you know, break down all the incredible moves or sequences or anything. It's just time filler to get to the ending spot. Yeah. Um, as much as you guys say this, I enjoyed this. Um, I thought it was very entertaining. Um, there's no moves. I mean, it's it's essentially a squash match of Austin squashing Vince. I mean, Vince may have gotten a few punches, a slap in, but that's it. Yeah, it's all it's all punch, kick, beal into the cage, kind of deal. Beal into the guardrail, brawling, but there really isn't any like move set or anything like that. Besides, you're right, the stunner at the end and then the finish. But I will say, there's nothing better than Vince McMahon bleeding. And flipping off Austin with no energy, just oh, just getting his finger up, and and that's the reason St uh, Stone Cold keeps coming back into the cage when he could have won. 
you know, as easily by, by going out. That was that was great. Uh, but yeah, what did what, as far as cage matches or entrances into the company or introductions, I should say, into the company, where does this Paul White coming out from underneath the cage and throwing Austin, eventually leading to Austin winning the match? But yeah, so where do you think this ranks in the top five? I, I would think it would be a top five. Um, the only one where I'm thinking debut that is better is Jericho. Yeah, I love Jericho. There was just so much hype going on with Jericho. This was like an unsuspected debut going on with the big show. He had just wrestled probably the month or two prior for WCW. I think he ended up getting squashed out as a member of the NWO. Um, I believe he lost a match to Goldberg. Uh, I think that was his one of his final television appearances um, on Nitro. This itself was like an unsuspecting. We were, you know, we weren't knowing that someone was coming kind of deal. It was a surprise. Whereas at least the Jericho, we knew something was going on because they kept hyping with the countdown and all that stuff. And uh, we had a pretty good idea of who it was because, of course, it was speculated online that Jericho had signed. But I, I think the the coolness of him inserting himself into the match by cutting out from underneath the ring. Again, with the storyline of no members of the corporation are going to be involved or they're going to be fired. Well, Big Show is not an official member of the corporation because he hasn't debuted yet kind of deal. So it was kind of like a little interesting plot twist to it. But I, I think the finish of the match was cool with the with the steel, the, the, the cage itself breaking and allowing Austin to escape swinging out on one of the uh, walls of the cage. It immediately puts a new force, a main event player, gets him into the hottest storyline in all of wrestling. It is a threat to Austin, changes the dynamic. It shakes up everything in two minutes. Very well done for it. All right, so why don't we have the educator break down this slugfest for us, and (laughs) uh, we will uh, figure out where this pay-per-view lies. All right, so we have uh, Austin actually does his entrance first, and he's into the cage. And then Vince McMahon comes down ringside to his music, No Chance in Hell. And we see at the beginning McMahon is essentially stalling. He won't get into the cage. He's teasing that he'll climb up the cage, that he'll go through the door. And eventually Austin, fed up with it, gives chase to McMahon. Uh, at one point now McMahon is in the cage, but now Austin is trying to climb up the cage or go through the door and McMahon won't let him in McMahon, uh, or Austin ends up faking or a, a twisted knee injury, dropping down from the cage itself, acting as kind of like bait for McMahon to come over. And once McMahon comes out, Austin just goes nuts and starts attacking McMahon ringside near the Spanish announce table. Austin throws McMahon into the cage, clotheslines McMahon, uh, and then starts choking McMahon with uh, a video cable from production. Austin tosses McMahon over the barricade into the crowd. There's continued brawling ringside um, as we have not even officially started the match inside of the ring. McMahon eventually tosses Austin into the cage and then jumps over the barricade in the opposite corner and then begins to taunt Austin to start lead to chase into the crowd. Both men are starting to brawl in the aisleway, going up the lower section of the bowl in the uh, ring or the crowd area itself. Eventually, they brawl back towards ringside. Austin brings McMahon 
uh, and knocks him over the barricade onto the floor. He throws McMahon into the barrier and then into the cage itself as they're back at ringside. They continue to brawl to the back to the opposite side towards the Spanish announce table. Both men are now climbing up the cage as if they're going to try to get into the ring. And Austin ends up following and climbing up the cage and rams McMahon's head into the top of the cage. And McMahon's body essentially rebounds and recoils. And we get one of the infamous spots of McMahon falling off of the cage um, into the Spanish announce table. And the way that McMahon landed on the Spanish announce table, the announce table didn't immediately crumble from the first impact. He landed so close to the edge that it, like his entire body ended up being te- like supported. And then when his body rebounded again, that's when the announce table kind of like buckled and crumbled. You could tell it was like a stiff bump that McMahon took. And I believe it's pretty well documented that McMahon actually broke his tailbone doing that particular spot. So now we see uh, some ringside attendants come down, some backstage agents come down. We see Tony Gurria. We see uh, the other Hebner, uh, Dave Hebner, coming down to ringside. A couple of other referees as well. There's a stretcher um, that is wheeled out, a, a gurney with a backboard. So they end up loading McMahon up. They put a collar on him. They put him on a backboard, and they load him onto the gurney, and they begin to wheel him out. We see Howard Finkel get into the cage and attempts to announce Austin as the winner, but he grabs the microphone from uh, Howard Finkel and says, "Uh uh-uh, this match never really started since neither of us were both in the ring at the same time. If McMahon is still breathing, I still, you know, we're still going to have this match. So McMahon is being wheeled out. Austin gives chase and scatters all of the attendants away from the gurney and Austin then rushes the gurney down back towards ringside and ends up pushing the gurney into the cage. So now McMahon has fallen off the gurney and they start to brawl again back at ringside. And finally, both Austin and McMahon are now in the ring and we hear the bell ring for the match to start. McMahon's laid out in the middle of the ring. Austin climbs to the second rope and does a second rope um, like elbow forearm drop to McMahon two times. Austin attempts to leave the cage through the door after just those two maneuvers once the match starts. And we see McMahon starting to slowly recover, and he's now up on his knees, and he flips Austin the bird, drawing Austin to come back into the match. Austin now starts to stop a mud hole into McMahon in the corner. McMahon low blows Austin and tosses Austin into the cage. Austin then follows McMahon, who is trying to escape the cage, and drags McMahon back into the cage. Austin tosses McMahon into the cage a few times, and now Vince is busted open, is bleeding. After the uh, continued uh, back and forth, and now Austin is bleeding, Austin climbs over the cage, is probably three-quarters of the way down the cage itself. He makes eye contact with McMahon, who again has stumbled back up onto his knees, Busted open and McMahon flips the double bird, uh, encouraging Austin to climb back over the cage back into the match for the match to continue. Austin hits the, the boot to the gut and gives McMahon the Stone Cold Stunner. 
And as Austin is just standing up, all of a sudden we see that cutaway of the ring mat and the big show. Paul White tears through and Beals Austin into the cage two times as the big show then attends to uh, Vince McMahon helping him up. He picks up Steve Austin as if he's doing a belly to back suplex or side suplex, but then, you know, charges towards the ring cage and throws Austin into the cage whose body clears the top rope. Austin's momentum causes the cage wall to separate from the corner. And now Austin is like clung to the cage as the cage wall is now swinging out towards the floorway. And Austin is able to just very, very quickly climb right down and drop off the cage door. He's the first has his first feet hit the floor and Austin unsuspectingly has just suddenly won the match at the, uh, you know, assistance of the big show. So now Austin has continued to have his right to have a championship match with the rock at Russell or with the WWF champion at WrestleMania, who eventually would be the rock winning the title back a few nights later on raw. Like treats just mentioned how much he enjoyed it. It's certainly not bad. It's not a match. It's a great spectacle. It's entertaining as hell, but there's no match here at all. I was even trying to think back. Was there ever a referee inside the ring? Like, it seems like this was always escape the the cage. There was no pinfall or submission option. Yeah, it's the old blue bar, escape the cage kind of deal. There was no referee. Mike Kyoto was never at all inside the ring, other than when, you know, Austin was going to originally be announced as the winner and Finkel was in the ring there. That was the only time Kyoto was inside. I mean, it's it's a fun spectacle. It, it's really all just to set up Mania to get Big Show to debut. It's very entertaining for the Austin McMahon saga. Um, but it's also, I hesitate to call it a match. Well, I think that's it, guys. Are we done? I think we did it. We are done with In Your House 27. And we are officially done with the In Your House series. We did it, man. What a run. What a run. But before we go, we got some things to do. All right. So why don't we uh, see if that Rock versus Mankind match can scrape by our top five? Because that, that, that was the best match on the card, correct? Sure. Oh, for sure. Not even close. All right. So I'd start with the top and work our way down. All right, so let's just run through our top five real quick. Number one, of course, is the Hell in the Cell match. Number two is HBK versus Kevin Nash at uh, Good Friends, Better Enemies. Excuse me, Diesel. Uh, number three is Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Dude Love at Over the Edge. Number four is Brett versus Bulldog at Seasons Beatings. And number five is the Canadian Stampede 10 Man. So, Ken, Rock, and Foley crack that top five is it better than the canadian stampede ted man tag let me start with kevin hellions i'm gonna go yes <laughs> educator <laughs> looks like he's in disgust why do you think it's better yeah you uh, if you're gonna convince anybody it's gonna be me what is it that this match had yeah i, I mean it's a it's a it's a good match it, it's great storyline uh, with the whole feud with Rock and Foley, sell me on how this was better than that ten-man Canadian Stampede and how hot the crowd was. 
I, I think I think both shows have a hot crowd. I think this crowd is hot for the action in the ring, for the storyline, not just because the people in the ring are their neighbors. Um, I think that the passion, the energy, the drama, the long-term storyline with Rock and Mankind both elevating each other's work to newer, higher levels and be worthy of the world title picture really is on display throughout this match. I see your opinion. I understand your opinion. Uh, I'm not subscribing to it. I feel that the 10-man Canadian Stampede, without a doubt, was better than. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm not crapping on this match. I think it was a no. good match. Um, I just I, I enjoyed the Canadian Stampede a lot more than this particular match. I'd say it goes into the like the best of the series overall. Absolutely. I would subscribe to that. Uh, no problem. All right, Kevin, let me ask you a question. Is Rock versus Mankind better than Brett versus Bulldog at Season's Beatings? See, now that one I think would be an easier argument. But that's our collective top five versus our right. individual top five. If, if for me, if the, if the Canadian Stampede was four and Brett Bulldog was five, I think you could sell me on that, but yeah. our collective list where we are and how we've gotten here at the end of the series, I just, I don't see the rock mankind match, uh, wait, the ending with the draw, I, I just topping out over Canadian stampede. So I, I can't, I can't put it there. Another question, Kevin, do you think this rock mankind match was better than stone cold versus dude? Love it over the edge that I'm not sure. I just want to get a gauge where you thought it would go on our collective top five. Depending on the day of the week, I could pick either. I agree with the educator. I do not think this will crack the top five. I mean, this could be 5B. Um, it's better than International Incident six-man tag, in my opinion. Uh, but I, would say I so. do not think it's better than the 10-man tag. Um you know, you were talking about the storylines and bringing up the the storytelling. There was so much storytelling in that Canadian Stampede match as well. Um, and the crowd was super hot. And, of course, we actually got a finish. You know, and Bruce Hart was part of it. So you, you got to factor in Brucey. I, I, I thought that's where, you know, maybe I should have brought that up. Maybe I could have switched educator if I said, hey, this match does not have Bruce Hart. Maybe if the big show threw some soda at Austin and Austin <laughs> slipped in the ring. <laughs> Then maybe, or Big Show slipped himself on his own soda in the ring. He would have been able to put it put it over for me. But all right, so that means our collective top five stands: Hell in the Cell number one, HBK Diesel number two, Stone Cold Dude Love number three, Brett versus Bulldog number four, and then the Canadian Stampede ten man at number five. So that is the official House Show top five matches. So great, it's a great list. I mean, it really is. I would say those matches stand on their own too, not just part of the house show or the in your house series, but you could literally pick any one of those matches up, watch them and be thoroughly entertained with how that show goes. So absolutely, we got to rank it. And because it is the last show, usually what we do is I ask you guys top, middle, bottom, but we're going to do it a little different. We're going to start from the bottom and work our way up. Um, I think that is a fair way to do it, and uh, let's see where we end up here. All right, is this 
pay-per-view better than good friends, better enemies? Of course. Yes. All right. Is it better than ground zero? Yes. Yes. Better than final four. Yes. Yes. Better than lumberjacks. Absolutely. Yes. Is it better than no way out? Yes. Yeah. Better than rock bottom. Yes. Yeah. Better than buried alive. Sure. Yeah. Better than beware of dog. Absolutely. Yeah. Cold day in hell. Sure. Yep. DX. Yep. Yeah. It's time. Yep. Yeah. Breakdown. Yes. Oh yeah, I would say so. Breakdown was the uh, the triple threat, right? Where they did double pinned on Austin. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, fully loaded. That would be the Triple H Rock two out of three falls. Wasn't it the tag title match? Yeah. The Undertaker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I would say it was better than that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Better than Unforgiven. Yes. Yep. Better than Revenge of Taker. Yeah. Yeah. See, I would stop there. I think Revenge of Taker is like the the placeholder. Like, you got to beat that to be really good. Because that was a really right. good, surprisingly, a, a really good event. Uh, is it better than Judgment Day? This is about where I've got it. Yeah, I agree. I like Judgment Day a lot more than this one. So you think it goes in right below Judgment Day? Right below Judgment yeah, Day, between right Judgment there. Day and Taker. All right, so it does not crack the top five. It comes in right at number 12. Of course, our top five, the official in your house rankings. Any surprise that the number one pay-per-view that we watched was Canadian Stampede? No surprises whatsoever. It was a great mat, a great show. Two-hour show, four matches. We got to see a great debut uh, uh, with Taka and the great Sasuke. Um, the 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 only bummer of that match was the Undertaker uh, Vader match. Of all you know, of the matches that were there, everything I thought was just such so well done though. And when that one was the worst match, and it really wasn't that bad. You know, it was a great show. I loved it. No, I think when we started, we knew that one was going to be high, yeah. no matter what. But my question to you guys, did you guys foresee that number two and number three, number two is International Incident, and number three is Triple Header? Did Nowhere in my mind did I think those two would be in our top. No, no I didn't either. Uh, number four is Bad Blood, and then, of course, number five is Over the Edge, so... Uh, congratulations. And, that, and even that, that over the edge, because unfortunately, of uh, the, the connotation of when you hear over the edge, we always think of the 99 one and everything with Owen. Um, what a pleasant surprise that show was. So congratulations to Canadian stampede and everyone involved in that pay-per-view. Uh, Diana Smith once again, gets another trophy to add to her mantle. Oh, baby. So guys, that's going to do it for us. Um, we have told you guys that we are going to have our personal top five lists for the pay-per-view, the matches, because this is just the collective house show list. Uh, if you want to hear that, join us on Monday for the run-in where we were going to break down the in your house series. And then from there, we move on to next week. The haunted house show begins where we will start covering WCW NWA Halloween havoc. Just in time for the spooky season of October. We get to kick off the uh, the Retro Network's uh, pod- podcast content with some Halloween stuff. So it's, uh, that's fun. 
Um, yeah, guys. So that'll do it for us. Educator, anything you want to say to the people listening? Oh, man. Let me tell you what a run this has been with 27 you know, pay-per-views that we have gone through from 95 to early 99. Uh, I want to say thank you to any of the fans that have followed us, whether it be from the start or have picked us up somewhere along the way. I want to say thank you to the Retro Network for sponsoring our efforts and wanting to do, uh, you know, just just a cool opportunity to hang out with some friends and just reminisce on wrestling nostalgia kind of with the theme of everything that was going on, trying to be a distraction to all the stuff that has been going on with the world health pandemic and everything like that. I want to say thank you to my two colleagues here. Man, what a run this is, has been, and I continue to look forward to what is going to eventually come. And, uh, yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for the opportunity to uh, be with you. Thank you to the fans for willing to lend us their ears and time to listen. And uh, we hope that you enjoy our future projects that we have to come. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys uh, just for listening. Um, It has been so much fun to relive these events, talk them with you guys, making dumb commercials, doing bits. Of course, all the inside jokes we got. I mean, what a great way to uh, really have that sense of community when we've all been in our houses. Uh, But yeah, our inner house series is over. Uh, Halloween Havoc, of course, starts next week. So thank you to the Retro Network for that and hosting us. Uh, Thank you to the educator and to the master library, Kevin Hellions, for being my tag team partners when it comes to this. And you can always follow me online at Maddie Treats on Twitter. And then finally, please visit all of the links in our show description, whether that's 20% off HalloweenCostumes.com, which runs to the 31st of October, or if it's the 15% off coupon at Fun.com, or if it is the link to the house show store uh very exciting having some merchandise get those leggings you know put them on it's fun so uh kevin hellions why don't you uh to take us home all right i'll join in on the festivities and thank my two co-hosts here for a wonderful run uh thank you to the retro network for hosting us thank you to wwe network for the content thank you to richard reader for our logo uh, you can follow us across the internet at TRN House Show. You can follow my own stuff at Master Library. You can follow Maddie Treats at Maddie Treats. You can follow the educator um, here, really. That's about it. Uh, thank you to all of our friends, everyone that's commented, everyone that's come in for this. Um, I hope you all enjoy what we have planned for Halloween Havoc. And I hope you all enjoy the new merchandise, the HalloweenCostumes.com, Fun.com, all of that. And I think the best thing we should do looking forward for the Christmas season is to put out the house show CD featuring our best musical bits from the show. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.